You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music in 1978 a band from rockford illinois traveled to japan and recorded and released one of the greatest live albums of all time i'm greg cott from the chicago tribune and i'm jim dirigatis from wbez and columbia college cheap trick celebrates the 35th anniversary of live at budokan live in our own studio then we review the new album from janelle monet That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, that's Rihanna with the song Diamonds, which references in its lyrics Molly, as do recent pop songs by Miley Cyrus and Kanye West. Molly can be used as slang for the drug MDMA, which was known as ecstasy back when you and I were going to raves in the early 90s. This drug by any name is long been associated with electronic dance music, but it's in the spotlight even more lately. There was an interesting story recently in the New York Times from Ben Cesario and James McKinley, which is talking about the impact it may have on one of the biggest public offerings the music world has ever seen. SFX Entertainment is about to go to Wall Street with a $300 million IPO. It was started by this guy, Robert Silliman, who had a hand in bringing Clear Channel into becoming Live Nation and becoming the dominant force in the rock concert, pop concert world. Now he wants to have a global company to control electronic dance music on the arena level across the world. But the connection to deaths from overdoses from Molly, MDMA, ecstasy is making people wonder how Wall Street will respond. Will people put money in this venture given that seven people in the U.S. alone have died since March from overdoses of this drug or from dehydration after dancing until they dropped from this drug. Now, as music lovers, we have to point out drug use is not unique only to the electronic music world. In the jam band world, at Bonnaroo, since 2002, there have been 10 drug-related deaths. But the size of these dance concerts is one of the things that makes these deaths jump out to the media. It's going to continue to be in the headlines, and it's going to be really interesting to see if it impacts a business worth $4.5 billion a year.
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that song is Hello There, the aptly named opening track from At Budokan, a live album by our guest this week, Cheap Trick. 35 years ago, the band recorded concerts in the famed Nippon Budokan Hall in Tokyo, Japan, and now it's widely considered to be one of the best live albums of all time. Greg Robin Zander, Tom Peterson, Rick Nielsen, and his son Dax Nielsen, who replaced the original drummer Bun E. Carlos, joined us in the studio recently to play a few songs from that record and to talk about it. It's important to note that in 1978, Cheap Trick was not a super popular band here in the U.S., but somehow it managed to pack 12,000 screaming fans into that Budokan theater. We started our conversation by talking to Rick Nielsen about why they decided to go to Japan to record an album. At the end of 76, we recorded our first record. It didn't come out till 77. But uh, in 77, when Queen came to America for their tour, uh, they were going to have Thin Lizzy open the, the shows. Well, the first two uh, shows, they, Thin Lizzy couldn't make it. And the guys in Queen had actually heard our the pre-release Cheap Trick album. They liked it a lot. You know, imagine those guys. I couldn't imagine them sitting around listening to it, but, <laughs> but they did. They liked it, and they asked us to, to uh, open the shows for them. So we did it in Milwaukee and Madison. The Japanese press was, of course, they're, they're huge in Japan, so they, they were there to see Queen. Huh. They actually liked us, and they actually asked us if we would write uh, an article for uh, about touring with Queen, you know, because, you know, get a different perspective on the thing. So I, I actually wrote a two-page article for Ungang Senka and Music Life. <laughs> About a couple of months after that, somebody said, oh, your picture's in, uh, you know, little pictures of us on Tour of Queen, you know, like probably, you know, one two-by-two two picture of us and saying that we opened for them. And then the interview, and then all of a sudden we started getting fan mail from Japan. And, and it, also they started writing these comic books. And we were in the comic books in the Queen stories and stuff. We like, wow. were interacting and stuff, and we'd get this in our, in our office. I had to tune Brian May's guitar, I think. Yeah. We're five minutes into this like chat. Me and we've Freddie learned... Mercury holding hands down the street or something. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're five minutes well, in. We've learned two trivial facts that are great. You know, Cheap Trick owes its career partly to the predecessor of anime <laughs> and to the fact that Rick Nielsen was almost a rock journalist writing. <laughs> the music had nothing to do with it. It was just yeah. Rick's well, article. Oh, there was that. that. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, so, no, so they, li- they liked our band, the Japanese. And they, so, so then a, a few months later, after our record had come out, the first album had come out, Kiss asked us to tour with them. And once again, the Japanese press were there to see Kiss. We got as much press as they did from them being at the show. And, and by then, we were, we were getting, like, tons of fan mail. And our first record, we had a number one single. I think we had uh, Clock Strikes 10 was number one over there. And I Want You to Want Me, the studio version, that, that kind of wimpy version on the studio, was <laughs> actually turned into a hit, kind of a hit single. And then we just got deluged with with uh, fan mail and requests for magazines. We were in all these different, you know, they come over and shoot pictures of us, and then, then like Robin said, you know, put anime with it. And in, then, in spite of all that stuff, though, yeah. it really didn't prepare us for the, the, I guess, the weight of it, because when we got there, it was much more than we thought it was. Yeah, well, we were asked, hey, do you guys want to tour Japan? Well, okay, well, we'd hate to interrupt our tour of Iowa to do that, but yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll do it. And, uh, and, we, and so we, we had a Russian promoter. His name was Danny Nanishkas. And they sent us the tickets. I think we, we all we had coach seats, and we got to finally landed in Tokyo, and 
And there was like about 5,000 people on top of the roof of the terminal screaming and yelling. Wow. And, we, and we didn't know they were for us. We thought there was somebody famous <laughs> on the plane. Then the, the whole time we were there, we couldn't really socialize. We had to, we were always, you know, had guards with us and we were transported in mail trucks. And they even blocked out the windows of our hotel rooms <laughs> so that nobody could see in. And uh, it, was, it was really not, pretty crazy. Not bad for four guys from Rockford, Illinois. Yeah. Well, part of the thing was, too, they didn't really have radio where they could play songs. But there were record stores, obviously, selling your records. And there was a big visual element that went along with what you guys were doing. Like, I, I remember as an opening act, you guys didn't look like four guys who just rolled off the couch ever. It was always kind of... There was a visual aspect to the show. Well, we were there's that you know, was four individuals. They sort of like Queen and sort of like Kiss. Yeah. I get, you know, it's like it wasn't just the lead singer and three guys that wanted to be the lead singer. You and, know, it was like people say, "Rick, you're just like that idiot that we see on the cover." I said, "Well, because I'm that idiot that's on the cover." You know, you know, I, they, I never tried to look as handsome as you two guys. <laughs> they never had they never had national radio like that that played yeah. rock music. That's true, but they did get around it by having like they would have a, a storefront window and put their DJs in there and put speakers out into the street and people would just mass around this to hear music. They'd, they'd, have, they'd have like an so, English top 10 or yeah. like, you know, like a, like a uh, top of the pops, you know, the UK top 10 charts. We did unbelievable. Yeah, we, we, we did go to some of those, those stations too. And yeah. I, I remember one in particular we went to, the mob was so bad. They were, they were getting knocked in the head by the cops by their like, batons, and their. I got stabbed with a pair of scissors in the back of the neck. Were they going I, to cut your hair? Or yes. What? Wow. <laughs> so, in other words, this place was horrible. <laughs> no, was here's no- the first place anybody liked us like that. That, that amount of people. You I remember Rolling thought. Stone magazine was there, and they came up to do an interview at the hotel. And I remember them. Uh, they interviewed me or something, and then, <laughs> and then when it came out, it was like. Robin depressed in Japan or something like that. Because like, oh. you know, it was sort of in a way because we couldn't go anywhere. You guys only thought you wanted to be the Beatles. The adulation and the, and the appreciation for our music was like, this is, you know, this is heaven. And in 78, when we went over there the first time, that was like, if you say you're going to Japan on a tour, that's like you're landing on the moon. It was the other side of the world. Yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, that was before we did the shows. I mean, when the shows were just the same, pandemoniums yeah. and stuff going Everything on. Everything sold out. And we played. People we were, were there diving off the balconies. Weeks. We were there. For, yeah. If you, if there's two. Uh, there's a video of us, uh, one of the shows at Budokan, and uh, one of the ones that we did during Ain't That a Shame, we did it both on the 28th of April and the 30th of April. One of them... We we used the version that you hear on the record from the one that the girl didn't jump from the balcony onto the stage and grab me. She was trying to get Robin, but she got got me instead. Right. I think so, I've seen that clip. Yeah. So, well, you're you're going to play that song for us before we get too far away from the girl, the balcony. Give us that tune, guys. You if got you it. Would.
Ain't That a Shame from Cheap Trick on Sound Opinions. Now, uh, it's listed as Ain't That a Shame, but t- talk about how you came to that Fats Domino classic, because it's not something that I- I'm sure a well, lot of bands were familiar with in the in the late 70s. And what it's really called. Well, it, yeah, it's really, the original title is Ain't It a Shame, that Fats Domino did, I think it was 1955 or something like that. And it, through the years it got changed to Ain't That a Shame. But uh, we were asked to play, uh, a, can you guys do a cover song? When we were in Japan, and we said, "Well, we've we'd done cover, we'd done Roxy music covers, we'd done all kinds of different fa- family, we'd done uh, Pado, we did all kinds of stuff that usually B sides stuff that people hadn't heard, you know." But we uh, that Lennon solo, we like the John Lennon from yeah. the, the Rock and Roll album. That's and, where our version came from. Yeah, actually, it came from the KTEL version of it, the, the <laughs> version that came on TV <laughs> for sale one. came out first, <laughs> right? So of course wow. we bought that. You know, uh-huh. that was one song we thought, well, that's a that's a great version. Let's let's augment that to fit us to suit us. You know. You made- 
sure a lot of people who heard that song and, and made it a hit had no idea that there was an original version out there recorded by this New Orleans R&B piano player in, in, in the 50s. I still love the fats. Yeah. He, he, he loved Cheap Trick, too. I what mean, did yeah. he say? What was it like the first time you well, met Well, we were in Detroit, and, said, and his manager came no, up. No, no, it was in Salt Lake City. Oh, Salt Lake City. Oh, Salt Lake right. City. There's is, a little difference there. Yeah, well, well, yeah. <laughs> and we tour a lot. Uh, we were in Salt Lake City, and uh, we were backstage, and all of a sudden somebody said, here's somebody who wants to meet you. And in walks this guy, and he says, hi, I'm Fats Domino's manager. Fats loves your version of Ain't That a Shame. And uh, back in 55, when we got a gold record, uh, the artist got one and the producer got one. That's all they made. And here's, here's the gold 45 of Ain't It a Shame. And he gave it to us, and we drew straws for it. How, how cool is that? I mean, you can't, you can't even make up a joke like that. We'll be back with more from Cheap Trick and live at Budokan in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later in the show, we're going to review the new album from the genre-busting singer and songwriter Janelle Monet. You're listening to Sound Opinions. Coming up, Jim and Greg's interview with Cheap Trick. On the day of the recording, Cheap Trick and drummer Bunny Carlos were involved in a legal battle that prevented band members from addressing Carlos's departure from the band several years ago. Carlos also could not be reached for comment. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cotton. My partner is Jim DeRogatis. And this week on the show, we're celebrating the 35th anniversary of the release of the live record at Budokan by Cheap Trick. You know, it's one of the best live albums ever released, and, and Rolling Stone magazine even had it as one of the 500 best albums of all time, period. Even though this album propelled this Midwestern band into the rock stratosphere, they remain a pretty down-to-earth, hard-working band to this day. We were joined in the studio in the midst of their tour by band members Rick Nielsen, Robin Zander, Tom Peterson, and drummer Dax Nielsen, who replaced the original drummer, Bun E. Carlos. We asked Rick about how they avoided the pretension and the overindulgence of some of their rock peers. Well, 
fans. You know, it's like there was nothing cooler than meeting or having the guys in Queen like you, or you know, the guys in Aerosmith they want to talk to you, or the guys in Kiss. The musicians always come to see us, which is like the coolest. And, right. and if we were up there being real pretentious and you know, put the salamis down our pants and done, you know, all the rock star dumb stuff, it's like a couple months ago. Uh, the Who played here. And Pete Townsend, I talked to him for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks to Pete for 30 minutes because, he, you know, it's like we're, we're mm-hmm. kind of uh, – when we played in Nuremberg in 1979 with ACDC and The Who, he, Pete comes up to me and he says, Hey, Rick, how'd you get that sound on I Want You to Want Me on the live album? I said, you're the guy <laughs> that did live at Leeds. What the heck are you asking me? It's like, yeah, I was I, ripping you off. It's, it's just kind of funny that, you know, like I always say that we're the band. It's like we, we won't steal your girlfriend. You know, we might like take the, your guitars. But yeah, we'll steal your guitars and your, all your licks, <laughs> but we won't steal your girlfriend. So they always felt kind of safe around us. Uh, well, well, that's a good cue. Uh, you're going to play I Want You to Want Me for us, right? Uh, how'd you get that sound, Pete? <laughs> uh, I want you to want me.
I want you to want me from Cheap Trick on Sound Opinions. Now, you'd mentioned Townsend uh, complimenting you on the guitar tone. And what's striking about that song, you listen to the original studio version of that Please song. Please don't. Obviously, you took it to another level when you were playing it live. Um, and well, I know you guys no, we are... It, it was kind of we the opposite. We went backwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, we, we'd, we played it live, and then when we did it in the studio, we went right out on tour before it was mixed, and the mm. producer mixed it to the way it sounds. We never sounded like we did on that record. Tracks were recorded well, but they, you know it was mixed not like us. You know, mm-hmm. you see us live at Budokan. I think it's like the the first record that sounded like we did live. Yeah, and, and it, it is kind of a raw, in-your-face record. And and the other striking thing about that song is, you know, the audience singing along to every yeah. word. Which yeah, was which that was, a surprise? When that's from the record. Yeah, that's I mean, where the, the the answer back crying, crying. That's the, they did that, and they they made our record better. Yeah, since wow. then, uh, the, all the audience sing that part, so yeah. it's pretty cool. Was there any audio sweetening after the fact? You know, uh, through the years, people have looked at some of the classic live albums and wondered how much was tinkered with. You know, it turns out even live at Leeds, right, had audience noise dropped in. By I think we, we toned down the audience, actually. It was too loud. Because it was too loud. <laughs> wow. and tr- true. <laughs> that it was, was the loud. sweetening. And, and uh, the only other sweetening, I, th- I think there was a... It was an issue with the bass drum, how it was mic'd. So, you know, they had to fix that. So you, so you had the bass drums yeah, on. It, even back then, people, people always asked that same question, you know. And the thing about the audience got to be so sickening when they'd ask us that all, over and over again. No, we they just, really did like us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'd just say, well, no, we took that from, uh, we took that from that another. That was from Frampton Comes yeah. Alive. Yeah, we know? took that yeah. audience and stuck it in there, and that would shut them up. Well, you'd much. hear the horror stories about exactly, well, you heard it. It all came out after the fact that people weren't actually listening what was advertised on the front. But it sounds like this was a record that obviously was as live as possible. Also, a single record, 10 songs, very concise in a lot of ways. Was that... Well, the record was only supposed to be out in Japan. So we did it as cheap as possible. You know, yeah, you know, it was, like, it didn't, it was never going to be out anywhere. And, right. and what they got, they liked it. So why change too much of it? You didn't think it was going to do it? It was just a souvenir item for the Japanese yeah, audience. Yeah, it was, and it was rush, hurry up and do this. And it, the pictures that they wanted to use, Epic Sony was the first Epic Sony release. The pictures they wanted to use, it's like our manager, ah, don't worry, no one's ever going to see these. You know, okay. So that, you know, the picture of me on the back that looks like I'm holding a yellow guitar is actually a blue guitar, but the lights were shining on it. And luckily, we, you know, we actually played good. You know, and we we played so many shows on our own. Luckily, we honed our honed our skills at all the every club in Chicago and Milwaukee and Madison and in Iowa and you know Minnesota. How about another song, guys? All right, got it. Look out.
So that was Lookout from Cheap Trick on Sound Opinions. Now, putting together this record, Lookout was not a previously released song, or it was not a song that was widely known at that time. Hadn't you been chose recorded on to put a couple of things on this record that weren't out anywhere else. Why? You know, you got ten songs to play with. Why put stuff on there that had not been we liked released? It. it was a pretty good one. We yeah. liked that song. Ain't that a shame <laughs> hadn't been recorded by us either, mm-hmm. you know? We're at WBZ, we're public radio, and for an hour, Robin, you were doing vocal warm-ups at the top of your lungs, yeah. and like everybody's walking to the bathroom or the, or the coffee room, and they're like, I, I made what? sure the what? microphone was on so everybody could hear me. What? But that's, that's so much, <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't phone it in. It's like you didn't, you didn't just roll out of the cab, and you, were, you, you, you guys care about every show you play, which is extraordinary to me after 35 years. I wanted to leave here an hour ago, but you guys keep yakking, so... <laughs> So what are you going to do? You can't leave. We want to get another song. How okay. Well, that's, there's, right. It's true, though. The, you know, the older I get as a singer, it's harder and harder all the time. And, uh, you know, I used to be able to roll out of bed and, uh, after staying up all night. And debauchery. <laughs> yes, it, it didn't matter, uh, you know, but now I have to take care of myself a little bit. Uh, we're going to get one more song from you. What's it going to be? This is the first song on our <laughs> third album. <laughs> and it's like uh, is, this has been covered by, uh, uh, let's see, who did Dave Grohl, Marilyn Manson, and Green Day. Uh, and because of the lyric, because every person we've ever met thinks their parents are weird.
Surrender from Cheap Trick on Sound Opinions. We have to say goodbye to Cheap Trick, uh, but uh, it's been a pleasure, guys. Rick Nielsen, Robin Zander, Tom Peterson, Dax Nielsen. Thanks so much, guys, for coming in. Our pleasure. Now we want to hear from you. What is your favorite live album? Does Live at Budokan take you back to 78? Share your thoughts on that or anything under the rock and roll sun at 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I review the new album from Janelle Monet, and I drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the track called Dance Apocalyptic from the new Janelle Monet album, The Electric Lady. She was born Janelle Robinson 27 years ago in Kansas City, Kansas, where she was kind of like a little theater nerd, but she wasn't really turned on by the whole idea of a conventional Broadway type of career. So she ended up in Atlanta and started working with members of OutKast, and they included her in their 2006 movie, Idlewild. While there, she forged something called the Wonderland Arts Society and started accumulating all these different friends from various aspects of the arts world and started making music. First EP came out in 2007 called The Metropolis Suite, part of what she called an ambitious science fiction project that was uh, going to be revolving around this alter ego that she created for herself named Cindy Mayweather. This caught the attention of Sean Diddy Combs, who signed her to his bad boy label. And in 2010, Monet returned with the Ark Android, a fantastic record. It was my number one album of that year. Since then, you know, we were talking about six Grammy nominations. She sang on that huge hit by Fun in 2012, We Are Young, numerous tours with people like Bruno Mars. Now she's accumulated a lot of attention on this new record, The Electric Lady. She's got Erica Badu, Miguel, Solange, Esperanza Spaulding, and this guy, Prince. You're going to hear him on this next track we're going to play, Giving Them What They Love by Janelle Monet on Sound Opinions.
That is Giving Them What They Love by Janelle Monet from the new Electric Lady album. Prince guest starring on that track. And Greg, it's fortuitous that you chose that guest track with Prince because I think there's a lot of similarities here between Janelle Monet and Prince. They are both geniuses. Step number one, okay? They both have an all-encompassing vision of R&B or soul music or pop that includes everything under the sun. Prince, in my opinion, although he remains wonderful today, was at his best on the first third of his career when he had a band around him that would tell him honestly whether an idea was worth pursuing or whether it had failed and would help him edit himself. Janelle Monet, only really being you know in the recording world since 07, this is only her second full album, has never had that. And as a result, there are some excesses. Now, Arc Android, her first full album, was pretty much from beginning to end great. But there are 19 tracks on this album, and there are some real mistakes. At one minute, she's trying to do Edith Piaf, French cabaret music. The next, she's Leslie Bercuse singing Willy Wonka songs. And I really dislike these little skits about a DJ talking about this android character of hers. I'm calling you on the air. What's up, y'all? I just want to say, power up to the Droid Rebel Alliance and the Get Free Crew. Yes, yes, sister, power up, power up. For those reasons, for the reason that this could be cut down to a killer album, but it's a bloated one, at present, I have to give it a burn it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Some of those criticisms were leveled at the Arc Android too, Jim. I, I see where you're coming from, and I had some of the same reservations about this record as well. I was trying to figure out why the Electric Lady didn't hit me quite as hard as the Arc Android. I mean, they're basically about the same type of album. They're kind of they're kind of long and sprawling, but the Arc Android seemed fresher and newer at the time. On this record, the high points again are pretty darn amazing. I mean, given what they love is an amazing track. Dance mm-hmm. Apocalyptic is a terrific example of you know you've got a ukulele in this dance music track. It, you know, she's doing these kind of audacious experiments with the music. But yes, there are weak points here. Some of these ballads, as you pointed out, are kind of mushy. Some of the funk is a little too polite. At 19 songs, 67 minutes, I would have wished for something more in the range of like 12 songs, maybe. The DJ interludes, though, I think she's trying to build a bigger story here. She's she's really working with this Cindy Mayweather character and this whole notion of being an outsider and a misfit. And here she's really bringing out some different aspects of her personality. I mean, she's making movies here. She's making novels in addition to save albums. The, save the DJ for the movie. You know, but I applaud the ambition of it. The, the whole idea, okay, now we've got the first bisexual African-American android pop star in the making. No wonder somebody like Prince wanted to, a piece of the action here. This is a really interesting character. But yes, I, I don't think it's her, it's her best work. It's not as good as the arc android. I love the ambition, but not necessarily the execution. It's a burn it for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just across the way, I lost the sea. Oh, 
You remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible on this show, we like to take a swim out to the desert island. Jim has got the Speedos on right now and is uh, taking a dive. He's going to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. What do you got for us, Jim? Uh, thanks. Uh, you know, I'm still mad at you from last week. You, know, you did this big buildup about, I'm going to play, you know, that song by the Saints, you know, Stranded, brings us into this segment every week. I'm going to play a song from Australia. I thought you were going to play the Saints, and then you play the Go-Betweens, who I love. But we've never really given the Saints their due, especially considering that for more than 300 weeks they've introduced the trip to the Desert Island. Who was this band? They had much bigger influence in the United Kingdom because they were from Brisbane, Australia, as being one of the bands that brought punk to the world. It has been said by none other than Bob Geldof that punk was invented by three bands, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, and the Saints. It has been said by Nick Cave. They were gods. That's how he explains who the Saints were. It was really two guys who met in high school. Chris Bailey, the singer, the songwriter, and later the guitarist, and a wonderful guitarist named Ed Cooper. They were writing their own songs. They were playing them at Ramones-like speed in 1974, way before punk was a thing, and they were raising the money to put out their own first single, which was Stranded. They produced... The second album that came a few years later on their own, 1978, Eternally Yours. Now, those first two records, everything pretty much sounds like Stranded. For the second album, Eternally Yours, they were as fascinated by Stax Volt and American Soul from the 60s and early 70s as they were with this ferocious kind of rock and roll that they loved by bands like the MC5 and the Stooges. The fantastic lead-off track and their second single, Know Your Product, has this horn section in there. Now, horns and punk usually do not mix. Ska, horns, yeah, sure, but not in punk, rock, Ramon-style songs, and yet it's brilliant here. This is a soul song delivered with punk fury that rails at advertising. They later admitted we were just rewriting Satisfaction, you know, this idea of uh, being sold something you don't want. Smooth talking, brainwashing, never going to give me what I need. It just kills. The whole rest of the album is not as good as this, but this song and Stranded are just like as great as rock and roll gets. Here's the Saints. Know your product on Sound Opinions. I'm just sitting in my chair when a buzz comes on. And yes, don't you try it. Yeah. You feel all right. Got some green new brown and smokes. Kill your head and clear your throat. Keeps you young and so in touch. Cheap advertising. You're liar. But never gonna give me what I want. I see a smooth talking. Brainwashing.
That is The Saints with Know Your Product from Eternally Yours, 1978, My Desert Island Jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to celebrate the replacements. They're back together again, at least two of them are, and we're going to look at their legacy. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Anthony Martinez. Special thanks to Adam Yaffe for helping record Cheap Trick. And... One anniversary to note on the way out. In 1965, this week, Ford Motor Company became the first to offer the 8-track deck as an option. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. My name is Alice Brandon. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I was listening to your show today on South African music, and I have to give a shout-out to my absolutely favorite South African musician, Dorothy Musaka. Her album that she put out in 1991, I know it's old, but it's been a longtime favorite of my whole family's, and uh, Pata Pata, especially that song. So um, there's so much great music coming out of Africa that most Americans don't know about. So thank you so much for highlighting some world music from that region. Thanks again. My name is Jonathan Woods from Chicago, and I'm calling to comment on your South African show. I'm surprised that you didn't mention South African Afrofuturist and TED lecturer, Spolek Tumbo. He's one of the most prominent and influential artists on the planet right now from South Africa. Also, you neglected to mention some of the dynamic rock groups over there, like Blackjacks, as well as the expanding rock and metal scene in general. Love the show in general, but... It'd be great if you guys would have mentioned those folks. Hi, this is John from Crystal Lake. Hi. Can't believe the recommendations for karate, especially since you had nine inch nails.
on the same show ever hear of a little song called Head Like a Hole? Miss the boat on Nine Inch Nails while you have it on the same show as a karate guy, kung fu guy, is pretty silly. You had some pretty good angry songs there that you could have recommended the guy. Good fighting song. Alan in Chicago, and I just was listening to your segment on the Kung Fu teacher from Highland Park, your doctor segment. I think it's one of the absolute best segments you've ever had on any of your shows. The whole thing was just superb, as human interest, as music, as uh, spirituality. Loved it. Thank you. Bye-bye. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.